We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 157 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am your host, Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. And g'day, listeners. Tonight, just to mix things up a little bit, I'm drinking a Kieran Mugami. Or Megumi. 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 Right. right. Okay. <laughs> and the 12th, the 12th man chipping in with Japanese pronunciation. Hi. Exactly. Hi. <laughs> My wife actually um, doesn't normally like beer, but oh. she doesn't mind Japanese beer. Japanese beer is very good. Mm. Is it a little bit sweeter than? It might be. Yeah, it's mm. very easy to drink. Yeah, <laughs> it goes down very, very easily. Yeah, yeah. So she wasn't a big beer drinker, but when we were in Japan, she discovered it. Mm. Mm. Right. It's just three of us, no special guests tonight. Mm. Uh, dear listener, if you're listening for the first time, it's an Australian podcast. We look at news, politics, culture, ethics, transformations taking place in our society, and we also are obsessed with religion and its role, and one of our main objectives is to keep tabs of what they're up to. And we might be a little bit critical of them from time to time. In fact, we almost <laughs> certainly will be. So occasionally we drop the F word. So, you know, there's a, there's a permanent language warning. It's not over the top. But it just might occasionally, if I have to mention Scott Morrison, the chances increase dramatically. But, um, well, what's wrong with Skirmo? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll what's wrong with Firetruck? <laughs> yeah, we'll get on to that. So there you go, dear listener. We'll kick off with our usual uh, mixture of topics and we're going to kick off, well, over the years we've complained about religious instruction classes in our public schools. Mm-hmm. And I saw an item, um, This was, maybe it was on the LMP website, actually, or Facebook page. But anyway, I'll, I'll play a clip for you, dear listener, and, and you can see how they've been outraged at what's going on in uh, Queensland. Here we go. It's called the Young Workers Hub, a pilot program launched by the Queensland Council of Unions. It would allow union members inside state high schools to recruit senior students. Will you be encouraging people to join you? Oh, absolutely. It'd be a bit odd if the Queensland Council of Unions wasn't about encouraging people to join. Among the proposed subjects also covered are workers' rights, wage theft, fair pay and political activism. The opposition says the program is undercover indoctrination. It's absolute rubbish. It stinks to the core. It's not needed. I'd say to them... Who the bloody hell do you think teaches your kids? Union members. Thoughts, gentlemen, on that one? Well, you know, the uh, my membership of the LNP seems like a decade ago, but uh, more than a decade ago now. But uh, given what's happening in the industrial world right now, I think that uh, union membership is probably a is probably something all of us should consider because yeah, yeah if, if well. You know. Okay, that's an entirely different question. Yeah, because whether you have a, whether there's a union that exists in your well, in my field, or that's, that's the whole point. I've got yeah. to find one for myself, <laughs> right? But um, <laughs> you've got to you've got to understand where the unions are coming from here. They are trying to get people early. I agree. So yes, it is indoctrination. However, it's a hell of a lot better than Christian indoctrination. 
at least it gives kids something that they can hang their hat on in the real world. So you're in favour of unionists coming into schools and, and giving some advice along the lines I've just said? I don't have a problem with them being taught about um, how they can defend their rights at work. Yeah. Twelfth man. I can tell you from personal experience that it's unnecessary for unionists to come into schools because it's the role of the uh, social education teachers to not indoctrinate, to educate students about the, uh, the history of the labour movement because, as we all know, if you go back a couple of hundred years, working conditions were atrocious, people were grossly underpaid and abused, and if they got sick, they lost their jobs. So, look, you know, there's some very valuable uh, history to be learned about the union movement. I'm not not saying I would support all activities of contemporary unions, uh, but I certainly support the existence of unions. I think they certainly have a valid place in our society. And as a former social education teacher, I used to teach young kids about the history of the union movement, not as a means of encouraging them to go out and uh, join a union, but just so that they are not um, ignorant of the the valuable role of uh, labour unions in our social history. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I mean, um, probably where most of the kids are going to join up, they'll join up the SDA or something like that while they're working at Woolies or Coles, the shop distributive allied, whatever it is. Right, because they've got a stranglehold. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So, you know, they'll be working at Coles and Woolies and they'll join up, but then that money goes off to... Be it's the union. Control, yeah, it goes off to the union, which is a right wing union, which is opposed to abortion, marriage equality. Mm. So there is certainly that. However, I do think, on balance, union membership is probably a good thing for people in the in the workforce. Yep. Okay, twelfth man, union people coming into a high school and teaching? Uh, no, not teaching. No, mm. I, I don't, don't think that's appropriate. But I do think it's appropriate for the history of the labour movement to be a component of their social education curriculum. Absolutely. And I know it for a fact that it has been in the past. I couldn't say that it still is. Look, the sort of content they were talking about, perfectly legitimate to teach, should be done. Like It's necessary. But there's no way union members no. should be coming into schools no, and giving instruction. That's what we have teachers for. That's what we have we, teachers we for. We put it into a curriculum and we... And we, and we create a curriculum with the proper content that's up for review and yeah. we don't just allow – well, we do, unfortunately, allow anybody into our, into our public schools. What's and that's next? Like, Environmentalists that's, that's, coming that's, in and, and telling what, kids that they should value nature? Well, we've got – That's the whole point. No, you, no, you've, no, you've already got the doors open to the Christians, no, so you might as well open it up to the unions no, too. No, this is the point, Scott, is if you say it's okay for outsiders to come into a – into a public school and teach stuff, then you're saying it's okay for the yeah. religious groups to do that. And anybody so, who has an axe to grind. Exactly. So our position has to be that nobody is allowed in a school to teach except qualified, employed teachers, members of the education department. Yeah. If you allow anybody in, then if you say it's okay for unionists to go in and do that, then you have to say it's okay for Christians to go in and give their bit. And, yes, and, you've got and if there. you say, well, you know, both sides then have the opportunity or all, everybody's got the opportunity, there's only one group with a bunch of maniacal volunteers willing to work for nothing. <laughs> 
and who will abuse the privilege. So we can't compete with their with their volunteerism. So I it, don't think what, that's a fair description of the Australian Labor Party. <laughs> yeah, right. You reckon they could compete? <laughs> you reckon they, they're maniacal enough that they could compete? Yeah. So this is the hour. And we've said this before. Well, I've said it, and I thought you agreed with me, Scott, was in relation to New South Wales, they have a primary ethics class. Mm. And, you know, there's arguments about the opt-in, opt-out, and its position on the enrolment forms. But the principle of it is wrong because mm. it's an ethics, a secular ethics course that's going to be, that is taught by, you know, volunteers. volunteers. Yeah, rather and than, rather than the um, It legitimises mm. the... Um, the Christians going in, so so yeah, good content, but not the right people to be giving it. And of course, I think you guys would agree, uh, secular ethics classes should be in the curriculum as well as a component of um, logic and philosophy. Yeah, and I mean, teaching kids how to find out what their minimum wage or wage entitlements are and Absolutely. how to go about there's claiming it. A lot it of ignorance and, out there. And what superannuation is and how they should check that they're being paid. So really valuable stuff like that. Indeed. That definitely should be taught. Yeah. Absolutely. Good discussion last week with Robin. If you're listening, Robin, thanks for being on the on the show. That was all good. Hmm. Um, our discussion about Bill of Rights, I wanted to make a few clarifications. So <laughs> So did you, you know, come across too harsh, did you? No, well, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be accused of, of misleading or being a bit of a, you know, a con man on this. And, you know, I've actually got a reference from somebody, you know, as to my bona fides on this. So I'll just play this for you. Absolutely. He's I know not Trev. To con I know, no, he, he, Big Trev is as honest and straight as he is big. <laughs> Thank you, yep. Malcolm, for the reference. Yep. And it's obvious who he's talking about. <laughs> As honest and straight. I'm actually not that big. <laughs> no, he's not that big, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about Bill of Rights, same-sex marriage in the United States, and I was saying that, you know, you wouldn't want a Bill of Rights if you were gay in the United States, and this was, uh, you know, I was talking about the change that's going to take place with the marriage equality laws in the United States if the new Supreme Court judge gets his way. With Kavanaugh, and, yeah. And the... Listening to it in hindsight, it might have sounded like the the Supreme Court there might actually um, ban marriage equality, and that's not how it would work because marriage equality is actually decided originally by the states, so they all had their own ability to make laws in relation to marriage equality and whether to allow it or not allow it, and first state did it in 2004, and by 2015 there were 36 states that had state laws allowing marriage equality. Then the Supreme Court came along and said, well, based on the Bill of Rights style provisions in the Constitution, all the other states have to allow marriage equality. And what's going to happen is my prediction is that the Supreme Court down the track will review that decision and say, nope, um, if a state doesn't want to allow marriage equality, then it doesn't have to. So it could go back to 36 states, and if you're living in the wrong state, then marriage equality will be off the books for you because it won't be imposed as a matter of the Constitution. Mm. And would that mean that those who had already married would be no longer married? 
do you think? Mm, don't know how that would work. It'd be messy, mm. wouldn't it? Mm. It'd be, it would be messy. messy. Um, it might be that those states will just refuse to recognise their same-sex marriage. I'm not sure how that would work out. So, so you still have the problem where these activist judges will use Bill of Rights-style provisions like freedom of religion to allow discrimination against gay people. Mm-hmm. So, so the point is that these judges will read the Bill of Rights how they want to, so they will take away privileges that you know, gay people might want and they'll, you know, you know, and they'll allow privileges to uh, religious groups which will bring about discrimination against gay people. So still on the whole, Bill of Rights are dangerous for Americans and they're dangerous for the rest of us for all the reasons we've already said. So, so that was that one. And what else did I want to add to that? Well, gun control, that seems to be a part of it as well. Well, this, you know, again, it's a classic example of... So the first 10 amendments in the US Constitution are their Bill of Rights amendments, and, of course, the second one is... The right to bear arms. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So uh, that's in the Bill of Rights provision, and... <clears throat> You know, um, Robin made the point, well, it's just not a very good Bill of Rights. Like, if you draft a better one, then you will, you'll it's, solve things. It's showing its age, isn't it? Because, uh, uh, you know, well-regulated militia. Well, well, the Third Amendment says, no soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. So, again, a clearly outdated provision. And, again... At the time that it was written, it had some significant merit, perhaps. Mm. But what you are doing with the Bill of Rights is it, they are an act of Parliament, but the way they're often framed is that if you want to change them, then you need perhaps a two-thirds majority in order to change it. So what you've got is, is one generation creating a law which is then making it very difficult for a future generation to change. Mm. And that's, you know, if the baby boomers, for example, haven't done enough trouble for for the younger generation, the thought of earlier generations imposing their laws on later generations irks me a bit. You know, it's like, well, we think our laws are so good that we're going to force them on, you know, future generations. I know what you mean there. I've always thought that if we had to have a Bill of Rights, then I would like to be... I'd like it to be parliamentary, not constitutional, because the constitution can only be replaced mm. by a majority of people in a majority of states, whereas mm. in parliament it could be amended mm. from time to time. I thought you'd have to make it a special vote and say, well, it's got to be two-thirds majority, mm. which I don't have an issue with. I would have thought that a Bill of Rights, if it was come time for change, that there would be overwhelming majority support for change. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have a problem finding two-thirds majority of the state of the parliament prepared to vote for it. Mm-hmm. But I do take your point. It could well be it could well be something that the baby boomers impose on the rest of us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And these things get out of date, as we can see with those mm-hmm. um, amendments. So. One other issue I wanted to uh, bring up as well that came from our discussion, because it kind of threw me off at the time, and we need to debate more with opposing voices because we just listen to each other too much. But when we're talking about the transgender actor, Robin suggested we might be guilty of identity politics. 
And I was sort of off, you know, put off by that at the time. But what I should have done was identify identity politics. And I, I like the Kenan Malik uh, interpretation where he says that what we've got at the moment is people seeking special privileges because of their differences rather than equal treatment despite their differences. And go back through 156 episodes, and I think we've always tried to maintain equal treatment of people despite their differences. And the transgender issue is a classic one where we are saying just everybody can apply for any acting role. It doesn't matter who they are, but you shouldn't be getting a special leg up because of some special issue Mm. as far as possible. So there we go. Scott, we talked about... My proposal for a, uh, a branch stacking and takeover of the Labor Party, yeah. and you said, well, have we, you know, wiped the LNP off the agenda? And then in relation to the Greens, you said... You, not you not while there's you, breath in my lungs, y- yes. yes. <laughs> and, and I questioned you as to whether you could nominate a policy of the Greens that you disagreed with. I mean, you've, you've done your homework and you've got some for me. I've got six of them, actually. <laughs> right. I went to the Greens uh, website, which Trevor very kindly provided me greens.org.au forward slash or backslash or whatever slash policies Mm. anyway these are my uh, top uh, objections a future for all of us and what really caught my eye here was the justice for first nations people and multiculturalism so we get down to the Greens plan will support a path towards establishing treaties for First Nations peoples. Mm. Treaties are a nonsense idea. Yep. It yes. would divide us into – it would divide us and it, when we should be concentrating on what unites us rather than what divides you us. on that. Good. Yeah. Establish a federal multicultural act. God knows why we need that. Mm. Anyway, it seems to me that was just them – A federal multicultural act. Yes. God. And what does it mean? Exactly. It sounds dangerous. <laughs> it does sound dangerous, doesn't it? It sounds like virtue signaling. Well, multi- okay, we can, I'll read this. This is from the Greens Policies website. Multiculturalism. Australia is one of the most culturally diverse countries on earth and we are a stronger nation because of this. Our multiculturalism is something to be proud of and to celebrate. We also need to make sure that the right resources, tools and opportunities are available to make sure all Australians are empowered to participate in Australian society. Okay, that's a great value statement, but why the hell would you then need to back it up with an act of parliament? See, they've shot themselves in the foot because they said our multiculturalism is something to be proud of and to celebrate, meaning it's working perfectly fine at the moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, the next tab that caught my eye was uh, the banking and finance tab, and I'm just going to find this part. Oh, where the hell is it? To promote competition in the banking sector and provide support for -for not-for-profit organisations such as credit unions and building societies. You know, how can you possibly say that credit unions and building societies are not-for-profit? Where was this? This was number 11. No, this was under AIMS 11. Promote competition in the banking sector and provide support for -for not-for-profit organisations such as credit unions and building societies. I don't know how the hell they can say they're not-for-profit. You know, well, there are such things as not-for-profit organisations. That's how they're described. Yeah, they're described, but they still make money. Yeah, <laughs> well, but, but that is the generally accepted description. But building yeah. societies, by definition, um, replow all sort of nominal profits back into the organisation, don't they? Uh, yeah, they don't the, they're there for the benefit of members. To any sort of specific shareholders. Yeah, I think there's members rather than there shareholders. There are members, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, 
oh, Scott, you're being tough on them there just because oh, they've used be. the terminology of not-for-profit when, oh. when we know what they're talking about. Well, here's the one that really got stuck in my throat. I apologise. I missed mm. this one before. A publicly owned financial institution should take the form of a form a key component of Australia's banking sector. So they want to renationalise the Commonwealth Bank, apparently. <laughs> yeah. They probably are going to start a new one, aren't they? The people's well, they would they would start a new one because the the Commonwealth Bank's already bolted. It'd be too expensive for them to renationalise that one. Yeah, exactly. So that that was that, and you know, I don't think you need to have a nationalised banking service anymore. There was probably a time when you did, not now. I think I think we do have to regulate them better. I'm open to it. I'm open to it. I know you're open to to it, but government bank. Yeah, but I think you've got to regulate them better because they have been getting away with some absolute garbage you only have to see the you only have to see hear the witness testimonies at the royal commission to the banking sector to realize that these bastards have got away with a hell of a lot so i do believe that they should be regulated better you know for example um one of the things that really stuck in my throat was when they had the uh day or two that was set aside for people that were from the farming sector were talking about their experience with banks. Mm -hmm. Now, there was one farmer there who'd never missed a loan repayment, anything else. He got sold up by the banks because they devalued his property. Mm -hmm. They said that he'd fallen outside his loan, blah, 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 and they sold him up. This Mm -hmm. guy had never missed a mortgage payment or anything else. That was frigging criminal. Mm -hmm. But they got away with it. Anyway... So that is something that I think that we should regulate to stop that sort of thing happening. But mm-hmm. I don't believe you need to go into a government-owned do, bank. Do you not think that when we did have the Commonwealth Bank as a state-owned bank that it um, keep the other players a little bit more honest? No, because the Commonwealth Bank was the first ones to introduce some um, uh, banking fees. They may well have, but, I mean, because it was owned by the government, the government had levers that it could pull to to correct any sort of uh, misbehaviour. Absolutely. Like you can do that, but I don't think that's necessary now. You can just regulate. And not only that, but the, the, the nation was reaping huge profits every year. I, all right, here's some homework for next week. Let's look at the for and against of, of a... Of state-owned a, bank? Yeah, state-owned bank. Could be one. Any, other than the, any others on the Greens list? Corporate governance? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the problem with these principles and all that sort of stuff is they sound Was it still under banking and finance? No, it's oh. a, a different one, corporate okay. governance. Okay. Was, uh, okay. Under the eight mm-hmm. principles, climate change is a material business risk that all boards must recognise as part of directors' liability. You know, <laughs> climate change is real. There's no doubt about that. It's going to have some significant business impacts. But, you know, I don't know what the hell they want us to do, you know, because you've, you've already got the situation that the Democrats, I believe, forced this on the Howard government. Anyway. Which, you, which number is this one? Is this in principles? Eight. Or eight? Uh, eight. Principles. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so they, they want to they incre- they incre- they put this onto part of director's liability, hmm. which... I don't fully understand what they're talking about there, but anyway. Mm, the devil will be in the detail. Exactly. So making yeah. directors liable for climate, poor, change. Poor climate change policies of their companies. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Mm. Um, you know, the other, the, there was one thing good, though. 
In their aims, uh, number 20, measures to reduce excessive executive salaries. Yeah. I do agree with that. With them on that one. Yeah, because ex- executive mm. salaries have got out of control. Look, so the main one really is what we said at the start was the problem oh, with the Greens is, is the – sorry, one more? Affirmative action targets for more diversity on corporate and government uh, boards. Okay. You know, that makes no sense. Yeah. 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 Targets are dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Quotas are dangerous. Yeah. It's but that's that sort of social justice warrior stuff that we said is the really problem is. with the Greens. Uh, it just kills us with them. Yeah. I've got more here if we want to go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Immigration and refugees. Okay. If, okay, you got anything that's not left wing social justice warrior style? Like you know, because I we nuclear uh, and uranium because you said there's no way I'm voting for for the Greens because they're like communists. Yeah. You know, red on the inside and you know, watermelon <laughs> thing. But, you know, where's the communist economic theory that you're complaining about? Well, that's the whole point. I couldn't find anything. Right. <laughs> this is just in their policies, which, you know, you can read any of the policies of any of the major parties and they all sound nice, but it's in the application of their policies. Right. And once they actually turn it into legislation that you've got okay. problems. So you couldn't find the, exactly. the communist... Economic policy. Well, okay, right. but you know, you've got okay. other things here. We've got nuclear yeah. and uranium. You know, yeah. they're sticking their head in the sand about nuclear energy. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, they it should be doesn't make sense now that solar is oh, and yeah, renewables are renewables so are so much cheaper. Yeah. That sort of thing. So it makes yeah. no. It makes sense just to yeah. abandon. Five them years ago, it. maybe it would have yeah. made sense. Mm. Mm. Okay, and then finally, population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The current level of population, population growth, the way we produce and consume are outstripping environmental capacity. Australia must contribute to achieving a globally sustainable population and encourage and support other nations to do the same. All right, so they've said that we're overpopulated. Mm. Then we go back onto the immigration and refugees thing. Yeah. And I don't think it actually had a number there. No, it didn't have a number there. But I have heard before that they want to increase the humanitarian intake up to fifty or sixty thousand a year, up from twelve or twenty or wherever it is now, mm-hmm. up to fifty or sixty thousand. And my question for the Greens is: if you're going to have that many immigrants coming in and you want to reduce Australia's population, what method are you going to use on the rest of us? Zyklon B or carbon monoxide? <laughs> that was the Dick Smith question as well, because Dick Smith has said that as well. Yeah. Mm. All right, Scott, very good. Um, you didn't think I'd do my homework, did you? No, I, no. I was, I was keen to see a communist economic theory, though. So, yeah, very good. Well, you wouldn't have done if I didn't remind you 24 hours ago. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> now, quick article, dear listener. We've mentioned this guy before, the new head of the Queensland University Law School, uh, Patrick Parkinson, and... He's got very close ties to the ACL and also to the Freedom for Faith group, and he's very closely connected to all of that. I'll just quote a little bit from this article from the Saturday paper. In his speech at the conference, Parkinson went on to say that all faith-based organisations are being threatened by what I call the new fundamentalism and asked, why shouldn't a Christian school insist that all its staff are Christian, he added, You can do whatever you like in private. There are no boundaries on sexual conduct as long as it's consensual. But he said religious organisations insisting on certain characteristics for hiring is positive selection, not discrimination. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Lyle Shelton could have written that. 
Exactly. So, you know, give Lyle Shelton a law degree and good experience and knowledge of the law, but with that same mindset, mm. and you've got yourself Patrick Parkinson, mm. by the sounds of it, in charge of the University of Queensland Law School. And, you know, good on him. He's got yeah. the job. Nothing that can be done about it, but it's simply a case of the dominionism that we were speaking about. Where Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite that bad. I mean... Um where is it say what? here? He's, he's got this. He's got this quiet. So why should anybody concern that somebody in the university has a different view view to them? It seems to me very odd. I agree with him there. You know, universities are supposed to have or a whole variety of opinions mm. from Marxism on the left to fascism on the right. You know, yes, it's um, and everything in between. Yes. So you know, I don't have a problem that um, he has got the job. It is one of those things, you know, because they, they, they pointed out to his opposition to marriage equality that the campaign that he waged, but, you know, given that 40% of the population voted no, there is going to be a fair number of them up there somewhere. Yes. I, I agree with Scott on this. There should not be any push to homogenise intellect, the intellectual, um, what would you say, calibre or intellectual positions of the staff, of the academic staff, whether they're deans mm. or just, you know, common lecturers. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, so long as he doesn't have an agenda or act on an, uh, a specifically uh, conservative Christian agenda in terms of shaping the policies or the actions of the institution that he's heading, then I don't see a problem with it either, frankly. Well, we'll have to wait and see. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't have an agenda that he would try and introduce, mm. but that's something the university's going to have to keep a close eye on, yeah. and, and if necessary, they're going to have to sack him. Well, let's wait, let's wait till he does it. Exactly. We've just <laughs> we'll, got to wait and see we'll, what happens. We'll keep a close eye on him, see what he get up, gets up to. That'll be interesting to watch. We'd previously had a problem with the conversation and it's it's a website that provides readable articles from academics on all a whole range of different topics and it is genuinely very good it is it genuinely is, very good it so. is, usually is but yeah. we've got a link to an article here where this guy is anticipating the report from the Ruddock commission and oh, the Ruddock panel and He's saying how, you know, we need to be really careful here because we don't want to lose religion from the public square in Australia. And <laughs> he quotes from some Oxford University Press publication, the Handbook on Religion and Health, uh, to say, and he's talking about the benefits of religion, saying that it's often related to a healthier diet, greater physical activity and exercise, less severe alcohol abuse or dependence, less cigarette smoking, less psychological stress, lower anxiety, less depression and more positive emotions, greater social support and integration and positive personality traits. These are the benefits of religion, according to this handbook. Um, He's saying that there's no suggestion of a higher power being responsible for this, but rather... The rational reason um, is surmised as a commitment to lower risk factors as a result of sort of following the Christian way, I guess I'm paraphrasing him here. There's an immense amount of data on this subject and it indicates conclusively 
that religious people really are happier and better off emotionally than their secular counterparts. And this makes its way onto the conversation, which is supposed to be academic, academic rigor. rigor. Mm. And I, it took me all of 20 seconds to look up an article that I was aware of in the past, which I've got a link to, dear listener, um, from a website called Why Evolution is True. And it looks at the United States of America. So when you're doing comparisons of, well, are religious people more happy or less happy or whatever, you've got a bit of a risk when you are comparing, say, religious people in Australia with non-religious people in Africa. Like the, just the standards of living are completely different. So mm. what you really need to do is take a country and then look at the religious and the non-religious demographical differences, if that's an expression, and... Here's a link to an article which has got maps of the United States, the various um, states, and they've colour-coded the different states for how well they're doing in different facets. And they've got a human development index, which measures health, education, income. They've got uh, poverty levels. They've got education levels, um, life expectancy, uh, overall accessibility and quality of healthcare, the teenage birth rate, the incarceration rate, and religiosity. And what it shows is that all the factors that you would want to have, like high life expectancy, good education, predominantly are clearly in the states that are not religious, Mm. and it's the states that are religious that are suffering from poor life expectancy, poor health, higher incarceration rates, it's completely the opposite to what that guy said in the conversation article. So, yeah, there's some facts and figures um, that really point out what a divided country that one is to start with and and how there's no way you'd want to live in those southern states. It would just be terrible. We um, got... Did you, sorry? sorry to interrupt, did mm. you check uh, the author of that article on the conversation? No. Well, I just had a look at his bio, mm. and he has a PhD in some kind of political theology, and that mm. caught my eye because I thought, what on earth is political theology? Do you know? Uh, he holds a PhD in political no. theology from the University of St. Andrews, UK. He- Politics that's practiced by the Vatican, wouldn't it? <laughs> no idea. Mm. And he's the author of Religion and Post-Conflict State Building, Roman Catholic and Sunni Islamic Perspectives. Well, we're all biased, but he's clearly got a bias in his direction there, and there's some genuine stats that, that prove otherwise, at least in relation to the United States. Mm. Hey, last week, I think I asked for voicemail messages. Yeah. We did. You know, I mentioned how much I love it when I, um, when an email pops up in my inbox and it says, you've got a message on SpeakPipe. So I got one during the week. Is that right? Yeah. Are you guys ready for it? Yep. Okay. Um, uh, here it is. I'll just find it. Okay. You ready? Bunch of losers. <laughs> <laughs> in case you missed it. Bunch of losers. <laughs> That's it? That's it, yeah. Um, I think that was from Marty, actually. Um, and and actually, his wife got on afterwards and sort of just explained. I'll give her explanation. Marty quit drinking. 
found religion for a while. I didn't love that. To be honest, I preferred him before. He had a sense of humor then. <laughs> Thanks, Marty. <laughs> Probably the one, the one message from you. I was going to say keep it up, but really the one from you is enough, I think. <laughs> yeah. Bunch of losers, eh? Yeah, there we go. Well, oh, we haven't had any hate mail. No, no, we haven't had any for ages. Hey, yeah. we've, but we've got 28 people who think we're fantastic. Exactly. Thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John. Stingers Platt videos. If you could let us know what the story is, Stingers, with your name. I can't work it out. Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, James, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robbie, Dean, Rod, and the two Kens who work outside the Patreon system and also Greg. Thanks, guys, for your contributions. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. We yeah. really do appreciate it. So, when you know... When I got that nasty voicemail, I just yeah. I just quickly logged on to the Patreon page and <laughs> felt the felt the love and the warmth. <laughs> uh, oh dear, oh dear, You're a bunch of losers, huh? Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Hey, um, Donald Trump, we should quickly mention he's now threatening Iran, like he's just saying, "Don't you watch out, you'll get the water into the wars, or you know, you'll get the biggest beating of your life." Like beating his chest about how he's going to teach them a lesson if they're not careful. And just the other stuff that he comes out with. Every time I see a videotape of him, I feel like we're in some sort of... Do you ever watch The Hunger Games? Dystopian future. Just these really weird characters who are quite nasty, but caricature-like people. He's just a nasty, ugly caricature of a megalomaniac. It's just... Awful to watch him every time. It just, uh, <clears throat> it's dark times for America. It really is. Well, yeah. let's hope he loses next time. Yeah. Oh, do you think he's, he's one of that bunch of losers? He, he Look, could be. <laughs> I see, my, um, yeah. my better half. Bunch of losers. <laughs> <laughs> my better half said to me the other day, he said that if Trump wins a, sec- if Trump wins a second term, it's all over for the US. Well, and, you know, he could be right. I'm not sure it's quite that dire, but he, he is. Oh, it is that dire. He's already withdrawing from the Pacific thing. He's he's told he's told NATO that they've got to pull their finger out and start arming yeah. themselves better. Yeah. You know, he's he's going over there kissing the feet of, of Vladimir Putin, mm. but he's going around slapping his allies in the face. Yeah. It, it makes absolutely no sense I, whatsoever. I, I don't want to sound like I'm a supporter of Trump because I'm far from it. But, uh, you know, people, um, much more intelligent Americans sometimes make the point that, you know, America is not just run by Donald Trump. You know, there's a huge state apparatus there. And for, for that one man to bring it all to ruin is a pretty tall order he's, and they'll survive. He is already, well, well, he's the question already is, done that with well, two, of, two of his appointments to the Supreme Court. Mm. Are very conservative. I'm not saying he's not problematic, but I don't think he's going to, you know, leave the whole country in a heap. So you're saying there's some faith in the institutions keeping him tracked. The institutional uh, depth is is so great that they'll survive him. Yeah. Problem is, he could, for example, just cancel the Mueller investigation. Oh, he'll do damage. No doubt about it. He could just sack him. And if the Republicans don't draw a line in the sand and say mm. you can't do that, mm. then effective that in investigation 
branch of government that looks at the president mm. will be gone. Mm. Mm. He'll, he'll be a tyrant. Yeah. Mm. This thing and that's Iran, on the cards. This thing with Iran, that's just bluster. And I, th- I think that's p- him posturing to try and uh, look and sound tough after his appallingly weak performance with Putin. So anyway, well, historically, uh, it took a long time, but Obama, following on the heels of what Bush had done earlier, struck a deal with Iran yeah. and said, if you exhibit clear controls over your nuclear capacity that we can verify, then we'll give you some benefits in return. And that really pulled them away from the brink of being a nuclear power. Exactly. And, you know, agreed by nearly everybody that that mm. was a good deal. And prior to, and, and now we've got Trump saying, well, you know, I'm just going to cause you all, I'm going to start war with you if not careful. Yeah, exactly. Like, basically. It, it but makes here's, no sense whatsoever. Here's what Trump uh, said towards the end of the first term of the Obama presidency. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's weak and he's ineffective. We have a real problem in the White House. So I believe that he will attack Iran sometime prior to the election because he thinks that's the only way he can get elected. Isn't it pathetic? Well, it's clearly what he's going to do himself. <laughs> like, he's really just mouthed off Yeah, at that point. Five years ago, whatever it was, six years ago. He makes it up as he goes along. It's terrible. He has no consistency in what he says at mm-hmm. all. We've talked a little bit about tribalism, but not for a while. And it's the answer to a lot of things. Mm. So, because I was talking about last week about how by cozying up to Putin, he'd really disaffected his, the larger tribe of just American patriots, and that's why he's in trouble on that one. So a lot of these things come down to tribal stuff and how really, again, when we're talking about the possible, you know, best plan A being reconstruct the Labor Party because it's just Australia is still tribal, Labor liberal really, and um, it's hard to break that sort of tribalism that's there at the moment. So a few thoughts on tribalism, dear listener. Bit of a rehash. So Marilyn Brewer defined tribalism saying that we have a psychological need for both inclusion and exclusion. So we need to feel we are part of something, but we also need to feel that not anybody can be part of it in order for us to feel important ourselves. Does that ring true? It does. I wrote about this the other day, and I was making these notes, and uh, it struck me that that was the angry virgins. Remember the virgins? Yeah, you told me about that last week. how they changed the rules that you didn't have to be a virgin Mm. in order to be one of the consecrated virgins. Mm. And they were really angry about it Mm. because they wanted to feel special. Mm. If you're going to let anybody in, it's no longer special. But they'd also made a a considerable sacrifice in their personal lives to be members. Yes. And then they were just going to let any old riffraff in. That's right. It (laughs) it devalued their tribe. So It devalued their physiological status. Yeah. So, so yeah, we do need to be part of something. And the reason, of course, is evolutionary because hunter-gatherers, if you weren't part of a tribe, then you just die. Like you had to be part of a group because Mm. you just couldn't survive on your own. So you would put up with a lot in order to maintain your position in the tribe. And 
you know, if you weren't evolutionarily designed that way, then you just walked off into the hills and didn't reproduce. So it's bred into us that we need to be part of a group and we are really threatened if we feel that we might be evicted from our group and not be part of it. It's a really important, hardwired thing in our brains. Can't be sort of underestimated. Mm. So we will divide into tribes over anything and we are naturally prejudiced against members of other tribes. So remember, there's been various psychological studies. One was the overestimators and the underestimators. Do you remember this one? Vaguely. So basically they just got a group of people and, and put them in front of computer screens and said, they flashed up all these dots on the screen and said, estimate how many dots there are on the screen. And then they said to the people, um, right, over here are all the overestimators and over here are all the underestimators. And in fact, they didn't even look at the results. They just did it randomly. And what they then said was, I'll just read from it here, they, they gave money to these people and then uh, left it up to them as to how they were going to give the money out. And even though they'd been put into a group which was completely by chance, they thought it was because of estimation features, when they were asked to, to divide money up, invariably they just gave more money to their members of their group than the other group, and they had no reason to dislike any of the other members of the group. They were just different because they were a different group. Yeah. And they even said to some of them, look, instead of um, you getting $5 and them getting $5, you know, there's another option here where you could get four and they get three. And some people would take that option because even though they suffered a loss, it disadvantaged the other people. So our sort of group thinking is highly competitive yeah. as well. It's not all uh, Do you know what it brings to Rather than having the, the extra dollar, yep. they just wanted to deny the other one yeah. two dollars and Correct. deny themselves one dollar. And their yeah. group would gain an advantage over the other group. Yeah. You know, occasionally when the, the government makes some announcement about increasing foreign aid, you know, to developing countries or whatever, and there's always a few people who pipe up and say, why aren't we, you know, feeding the homeless in, in our country first? Mm. Is it part of that phenomenon, do you think? I mean, even the homeless in Australia are probably better fed than some of the people living in, in rough houses in some p parts of the developing world. Probably is something. It's, it's not wanting to give money outside the group outside of the group. Australian. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That would be part of it. It also sort of explains a little bit of the temperance movement. Like when they banned alcohol, mm. they banned it for everybody. Mm. So even members of the group missed out, but it was seen as a, as a way of enforcing group identity for hardcore Protestants. So, so yeah, people will take a hit for themselves even if it, if as a result, one of the outer groups takes an even bigger hit, quite frightening. So the Protestants didn't mind giving up the booze so long as the Catholics couldn't drink as well. That's right. Yeah, okay. and it enhanced Protestant identity. Yep. The other thing is that in politics now we're becoming more divided, and it, it used to be that if you were Labor or Liberal or Republican and Democrat you overlapped on a lot more issues than what you do now. People are, are dividing more politically. And I've got a link to an article here. Let me just find this one here. This relates to a book called Uncivil Agreement by 
Liliana Mason. And she says there's been a decades-long process of social sorting. Mason notes that although racial and religious animosity has been present throughout American history, only recently has it lined up neatly along partisan lines. In the past, the Republican and Democratic parties attracted supporters with different racial, religious, ideological and regional identities. But gradually, Republicans became the party of white, evangelical, conservative and rural voters, while the Democrats became associated with non-whites, non-evangelical, liberal, metropolitan voters. The lining up of identities dramatically changes electoral stakes. Previously, if your party lost, other parts of your identity were not threatened. But today, losing is also a blow to your racial, religious, regional and ideological identity. Hmm. I reckon that's spot on. It seems to be in the American case. Hmm. Do you think hmm. that applies equally to Australia? No, not yet. Not yet. I just hope it doesn't go that way, though. Me but too. I'm fearful of the Liberal Party becoming that white, evangelical, conservative... Hmm. Rural voters, neo-liberals, yeah. As we yeah know, but, the Christians yeah. are trying to take over the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah, but I honestly think that'll backfire on them because they'll only ever get Kevin Andrews' seat. Tony Abbott would lose his seat. You know, it's the population over here is not as bound to the church as they are in the US. Mm. You know, in the US you go down parts in Georgia and there's five or six churches on a single street, mm. you know. Mm. Anyway, another example of the way these issues become politicised is, again, you know, an American example, but the HPV vaccine, the human papilloma virus. virus. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was an Australian. Who it was an Australian who found it and he, he yeah. developed the vaccine. It's for principally for cervical cancer, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I think so, he was born in Scotland. <laughs> yep. Uh, It's an extremely common sexual disease. Upwards of 75% of sexually active people in their 20s and 30s are going to be exposed to it. Uh, It's probably the only cause of uh, cervical cancer. Mm. So they had difficulty introducing that in America because the makers of it sought early approval and that meant that it was debated in Congress and in state legislatures. So what we had was people with zero scientific knowledge were raising questions about a mandatory vaccine for girls instead of boys, and it suggested that they were sexually promiscuous and would be needing this vaccine. So it became a moral issue as to whether people have this vaccine. So, Like the contraceptive pill several decades ago. People yeah. predicted it would encourage um, promiscuity. Yeah. But there's another vaccine, the HBV, which is the hepatitis B vaccine, also sexually transmitted, and the take-up rate for that was 95%. Nobody was arguing about it. It was a few years before this one, but the reason was that people learned about it from their doctors. They didn't learn about it from politicians, and it wasn't a politicised thing, so people could make a decision without reference to their identity, just on the merits of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, so one vaccine adopted and no arguments, 
because the message came from doctors rather than from politicians. That's interesting. It is really interesting, isn't it? And it makes you it makes you wonder what politician would argue against vaccinating people for HPV. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, mind you, I'm not uh, in principle against politicians debating the merits of um, of medical developments. Well, yeah, as long as they've got something sensible to say, and clearly these guys didn't have anything well, sensible to say. Know, it just shows that we need politicians who are well-educated and know what they're talking about. Well, you just leave that one up to the experts, don't you? Yeah. Like medical I mean, experts? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, we, had, um, we have had uh, errors. <clears throat> we have had mistakes. We have had disasters like thalidomide. But, but this is like with the um, sex doll one where we basically yeah. said, well, what the experts come to, mm. that should be what we're going to agree yeah. to. Yeah. Look, you're right. We inevitably get better results if we leave it to experts, don't we? Yeah, we do. Okay. So as well as we're becoming more divided and our politics is including all sorts of other identities, so the stakes are higher when it comes to politics than it used to be. Other things just about tribalism are when an issue is tribal, then facts and figures become irrelevant. The desire to be correct becomes far less important than the desire to be a good member of your tribe. So there was an experiment, for example, by Jeffrey Cohen where he gave people a position on welfare and experimentally altered it so that either the Republican or Democrats were saying basically the same thing on welfare. And what he found was he could get people to change their position on welfare 100% all the way to the other side of the spectrum policy based on what the party they were told uh, or what party they were told supported that position. So on an issue where people really didn't know what the social welfare policy was... Uh, they could swing them 100% just by saying which party was in favour of which policy. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. So people don't look at the facts and figures. They just look at what's what's my my party doing. Yeah. That's why I'm saying a Labor Party takeover could be successful because people won't care that the policies actually change. <laughs> <laughs> They'll still just vote Labor. Mm. Good luck it's with, true. Good luck with changing it, though. It, it's true. The other example of that is like abortion. Um, you know, again in the States, all these American examples, but that's all you get to read, dear listener, because nobody does research in Australia anymore. But, you know, abortion, pro or against, was pretty much evenly divided within Republicans and within Democrats. But over the years it's changed now where it's just a key plank that divides them. Yeah. So these things do change over time. Yep. And identities are not... Yeah, they're not primarily about adherence to a group ideology. They are emotional attachments that transcend thinking. And at election time, voters choose a party which matches their identity. And then they rationalise the decision with appropriate party-supplied reasons. So, yeah, the ideology can change over time. Now, I am a little bit uh, caught out on this episode, dear listener, because I've got a new podcast that I've been listening to, and I really like this one, called You Are Not So Smart. And it looks at psychological behaviour of people and groups, why people do things the way they do. And I listened to these three episodes, which uh, were all about the backfire effect. And I was going to talk to you about this amazing backfire effect. And then just before 
doing the podcast, I listened to the fourth episode, which then admitted that the backfire effect was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of ruined things for me. But there was some really good stuff in there. So I've got some links, dear listener, to this other podcast, You Are Not So Smart. And it it put me on to – where is it? It put me on to – and I have a link here on the show notes – the debunking handbook, which was trying to, you know, how hard is it to change people's opinions on things? Like, it's really tough. So we tried to change Robin's opinion about the Bill of Rights and he was just wasn't having a bar of it, was he? We could have come to an agreement with Robin, really, that in his situation in South Africa that he got lucky and that in Australia things aren't so bad that we need to run the risk. And he might have agreed with that. We need to reframe that. So, But people... Yeah, so there's a common misconception. Well, anyway, there's a link to this um, to this document, the debunking handbook, and it talks about different myths when you're trying to change people's opinions and what you can do about it. So, a common misconception assumes that public misperceptions are due to a lack of knowledge, and that the solution is more information. And one of your big things, twelfth man, education. education. Yeah, so. Good education, not just any old education, good Mm. comprehensive secular education based on facts and uh, good evidence. Yeah. So what they've found is that once people receive misinformation, it's really difficult to remove the influence of of misinformation. Yeah, I agree with that. So there's an example where they tell people a story about a warehouse that catches fire and is destroyed. So in the, in the story that people are told, the people read that there was a negligent storage of gas cylinders caused a fire. That's in the first part of the story. But later on in the story it says, police have confirmed there was no evidence of gas cylinders or negligence causing the fire. So people get misinformation and they get a retraction of that misinformation. And... What they found is when they were um, then asking people afterwards, so, you know, what caused the fire, and people said, well, the gas cylinders caused it. But they'd read the part saying that there were no gas cylinders, but they couldn't get it out of their head because they already had the gas cylinders in their head and they couldn't get it out. So they had some verbatim responses of a person to later questions. So the question was, what was the content of the police message? Quote, that there were no gas cylinders involved. Question, what caused the explosion? The gas cylinders. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically that misinformation had a long-term effect on the person's thinking despite a complete retraction and their knowledge of the, retac- of the retraction. So people find it really difficult to unlearn or remove misinformation. Because Do you think it's the same with God? Yes, coming to that. So it leaves Absolutely, a it is, yeah. it leaves a gap that needs to be filled. Mm. So this is this is the difficulty. So I'm going to skip the bit where they talk about the backfire effect because it's actually not true. What they do say in this uh, changing people's minds is that um, common wisdom is that the more counter arguments you provide, the more successful you'll be in debunking a myth. But it turns out the opposite is true. When it comes to refuting misinformation, less can be more. Generating three arguments, for example, can be much more successful in reducing misperceptions 
than generating 12 arguments because people just get confused, bored, tired, don't take it in, and it's just too much hard work. So through these studies, they found that you're better off just using two or three maximum counter-arguments rather than 12. Here's the key one that, that uh, if you're really trying to change people's or somebody's opinion on something, change their belief, what you've got to do is fill the gap with an alternative explanation, which gets back to the religion one. So, okay, so just going back to that, um, the warehouse fire. So uh, people given misinformation um, about gas cylinders, that was taken away. They didn't have anything to fill the gap. So their desire and inbuilt tendency was to, to, keep, for an explanation. to keep that explanation that they'd originally been given. Different group of people in the same experiment were told that um, it was the gas cylinders. Oh, no, it wasn't the gas cylinders. In fact, there was some uh, lighter fluid and accelerant was being stored there, and that caused the fire. The, the people who were given that story, none of them referred to the gas cylinders when they were asked what caused the fire because they had a replacement uh, explanation. idea, explanation that they could rely on. So I have links to this, but that was a really key one, that if you're trying to debunk something, convince somebody of something else, if your argument involves taking something away, a platform of belief, you need to provide an alternative. Other pe- otherwise, people are just going to hang on for dear life to that thing, even mm. when all of the evidence proves otherwise. And religion, 12th man, as you were referring to, it's just not going to work large scale, well, this is their problem. Why people are still hanging on to religion is because a really well-thought-out alternative is not being um, provided. What about spiritual but not religious? Well, it has to have a story that people... People have an identity and a life that is built... It's not God, as described in the Bible, but there's something out there. There's a, a higher intelligence. I don't know what it looks like. But it's out there, and it created everything. Well, you've got to come up with something plausible that will allow people... Because people are basing moral and life decisions on this belief, and if you take that away, then they go, well, hell, all this other stuff that I've got structured based on that, what do I do with that? Where does that go? You're very right, Trevor, because when Mm. I left behind my faith, Mm. I spent good... Bloody five years, I think, thinking to myself, oh, shit, have I just signed myself up to an eternity of hell, you know? Right. And even though I discarded it and that sort of stuff, I'd already said logically out loud that it's nonsense, the book doesn't mean anything. Still used to think, oh, have I I signed myself up for an eternity of hell? Mm. I replaced my... Well, I, I wasn't a really a strong religious believer anyway, at, at any time really, but I have to say um, my movement away from agnosticism was through university study of anthropology, sociology, mm. history, uh, which did give me a very, very solid and convincing uh, story you know, of mm. humanity, meta-story of humanity and Mm. where we came from and why we developed religious ideas. Yeah. But were you prior to that relying on religion for your moral guidance as to why you should be a good person? I don't 
I don't know. Perhaps subconsciously, you know, having mm. been sent to church for many years as a child. What about you, Scott? Um, not overtly, because I. <laughs> by the time I was in my late teens, I could already see the contradictions in the Bible mm. and that sort of stuff. And I was looking at the, um, I was looking at the rules and as they were laid down, and I could think to myself, "This is all garbage." So I probably fall into Paul's habit. Maybe I'm. Maybe it was subconsciously. See, it might be on that, my morality. I don't know. It could be that at that time you had just been practicing as a good person long enough that you figured you could just do it without mm. a religious need. Like you do something often enough, it's become a habit, and you go, "Well, I don't really need." It forced on me because I know I'm not going to go out raping and pillaging, and I don't need that sort of authoritarian. Yeah, and that's the thing that um, you know you do hear, uh, particularly in the US, you hear some preachers saying, you know, if you get rid of God, there'll be rapes and all that sort of thing. Mm. <laughs> we've we've seen the number of rapes that happen in the Catholic Church, you know. So, mm. so I, I was listening to, again. Part of this podcast was. They were trying to encourage people in hospitals, I think, to wash their hands a certain number of times a day. And what they did was they put some sort of vegetable dye on their hands and that required you to wash your hands, let's say, 12 times a day in order for the dye to disappear. So when people rocked up at the hospital, they'd get stamped with the dye and when they exited, the dye had to be gone. So Mm. people got in the habit because of the dye of washing their hands 12 times a day. Do that for a few months, and then you don't need the dye because people are in the habit. And, you know, just sort of back to that religious argument where people are told, well, don't lie, don't steal, be good. Do that, you know, for 18 or 20 years, and then you realise, well, this is automatic. I don't need to. I, I'm not, right. I have no um, inbuilt desire to do the wrong thing. I know I'm going to be okay. Maybe that's what happens to some extent. Well, I don't Maybe know. People don't trust themselves to do the right thing I if they know. give up religion. See, I don't know. I, I wasn't ever taken to church as a little kid. No, I think I was. No, I remember going to Sunday school when I was real little, but then there was a whole number of years where I didn't go to church, and then I started going when I was 13 or 14. And, yeah, it was just one of those things. I think by that stage I had fairly set down morals anyway that I'd learnt from mum and dad more so than the Bible. So the scary part for you when you moved away from religion, I'm thinking of this as, again, this podcast gives an example of like a table and if with four legs and you're removing one of the legs. Exactly. It's just going to tip over if you're yeah. not careful. Yeah. Um, so for you, the fear was going to hell. Exactly, it? yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you told yourself intellectually there is no, no hell, hell. Yeah. but emotionally you're still going, exactly. what if I'm wrong? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. Hell well, wasn't mm. really part of the equation for me, consciously, yeah. I, I, I can say. Mm. I'm not sure why, mm. but I think what you said before about just this uh, self-image of being a good person, I think that was more what was in my mind mm. of just being a good person, of... Um, you know, not, um, I don't know, offending the, the values that you observed growing up in your family and your, you know, your neighbours, your teachers, whoever. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that, Paul, because, you know, where you said observing the values of your friends and family, I think there's a lot in that. Yeah. 
So anyway, dear listener, if we're going to debunk <coughs> ideas, namely religion was the primary one on the agenda, we're going to provide the alternative in a clear way that's going to secure people who have built up a sort of a, a moral thinking relying on religion and a lifestyle relying on it. If you're going to whip that away... Mm. Uh, we have to replace it with something. Yes. Mm. According to these um, sort of psychological experiments, you need to rep- fill the gap with a supportive alternative. Mm. Of course, uh, what they call the... You know, the, you've heard of deep green environmentalism. No. Deep green environmentalism is extreme environmentalism. You know, this kind of... A, a little bit fanatical sort of... Um, uh, section of the environmental movement that really is, you know, wants us to go back and live in the countryside in a, in a log cabin and, you know, chop our own firewood and grow our own veggies and, you know, right. basically yep. eschew the, the trappings of modern civilization because of the, what they perceive as the damaging, um, you know, factors associated mm-hmm. with producing it all. Um, and there's a there's a certain religious um, thread running through that, isn't there? You know that that the earth is our god or our creator, and that we have to return to some sort of harmony with it. Mm. Yep. And in in a sense, worship nature. Yep. Yep. It's an overarching mode of conduct. That's a plan or a a, a bible for living. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Mm. So. Shall we visit the Greens party next? Not while there's breath in my lungs. <laughs> we should do it as just a, as a, as a little They excursion. may be reformable. Who knows? <laughs> well, the, the, here's the problem, though. I've, I've just argued that tribalism, people are not breaking away from the two major parties. So there's no point going to the Greens. This is the whole point. You need to be with one of the two, with one of the two major ones. Um, that makes sense. Otherwise, you might as well start another party. I mean, the Greens are only 10% or whatever. You might as well start and start afresh, and it's just not going to work, I don't think. No, as it much, as it, as, much mm. as it pains me to say it, Trevor, I'm beginning to think you might be right. That, mm. um, Why does it pain you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does pain me because, you know, he's, I've told him he's right twice. To me. <laughs> um, you know, I think the LNP probably is too far gone. Mm. It is too far gone to be reformed mm. and the, the only thing that'll only thing that'll wake them up is electoral oblivion right well your homework 12 million is to find us a labor party branch meeting that we can go along to dear listener if there's anybody out there i've i got a hold of the labor party rules and it was all about how pre-select i was looking at the section on pre-selection and there's obviously a vote of it's quite a complicated formula between head office and the local electorate as to the, the power that they have with their votes. It was quite complicated. If there's somebody out there who begs knows... Begs the question, how the hell did Jed Carney get parachuted into Batman by Bill Shorten? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, and each state is different okay, as well. So, yeah. So it's quite complicated. It if there's anybody out there who... Begs the question why Tony Abbott is still the sitting member for Warringah because, uh, you know, the same-sex marriage um, uh, issue showed a uh, com- almost yeah, an yeah. inverse um, correlation. Yeah, but the, it, was, it didn't matter what the electorate thought. It was what the branch members thought. They could have been thinking mm. but anything. he is not... 
truly representative of the values and the views of most of the people in that electorate. He doesn't have to to be pre-selected. He's mm. just going to represent the values of the of the members mm. and a proportion of the head office. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to work that out. Um, if there's an expert out there in in Labor Party pre-selection rules, member. he is yeah. the elected member. He is. Yeah. For that electorate, so more people voted for him than voted against him. Yes. In a sense, you know, after, um, you know, uh, preferences and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Right, dear listener, well, that was an unusual episode. I've had to do a lot of editing, probably, because <laughs> there's all sorts of funny we, things happening. We hope you've enjoyed your last 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much for listening. Bye now. Maybe next week with our... Um, Nomination for pre-selection for the ALP. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Viz Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.